Alchemy. Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Welcome to the Alchemy of Truth. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Alchemy of Truth. We are with Brother Hamza Georges, and he was kind enough to allow us into his hotel room to discuss his work, his beliefs, and the incredible torrent of thoughts and ideas that are coming his way and coming out of him as well. So, Brother Hamza, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. It's a pleasure, my beloved brother. Jazakallah Thank you very much. So, I saw your latest debate in the UK with the American physicist slash philosopher. Professor Lawrence Krauss. Yes, Lawrence Krauss. That's He's it. not a philosopher. If you were to say that to him... He would be thoroughly offended. Would he? He hates philosophy. He hates deductive thinking. He says, just do the science. So, yeah, he's an empiricist, he's an educator, he's a cosmologist. He was an advisor to Obama as oh. well. Yeah. Advisor to Obama, well. Yes. On science, of course. On science, yeah. The beginning of the uh, debate I saw was, was quite entertaining, quite uh, useful, quite beneficial, insightful. But then, as he started to reply to your uh, statements and challenge you, it seemed the debate became less and less about ideas and more and more about positions and about his own and your own um, integrity or something. And so my question to you in the beginning is, do you think debates like this are cheapened by the theatrical tit-for-tat-tricks that I saw in that lecture? Yes and no. I mean, we have to provide a context. Every time I teach people or I instruct people on how to articulate a positive case for Islam, for example, I usually start by saying, all the debates you've seen me do, ignore them. Because that is not what you would call positive, warm engagement with the wider society. Mm. And I never claim that this is the way we should communicate with the wider society. It's not. However, debates have their niche. They have their strategic power. That if you study social theory and social constructionism, you see that there are some leading influential figures of movements, there are leading influential figures of political ideologies, or whatever the case may be. And these influentials, although they must be engaged positively, but they also must be positively exposed. If you show that their ideas are not that strong, and you show that their personalities are not that strong, there's nothing to fear, there's nothing godly about Richard Dawkins, for example. He's not a saint, he's not an untouchable, he's not masoom, yeah? He's not free of sin or mistakes. And if you show that, it provides a very positive social effect to the Muslims and non-Muslims, because they think, he's just human too, and look, his ideas are not that strong, and he's being challenged publicly, and he hasn't provided a very strong response. So from that perspective, debates are very important in helping shape narrative. But the 99.9% of the time, we should not be debating. We should be articulating a positive case for our tradition, for our values and who we are, even to the extent where we must tolerate their harm. For example, you'd be talking to someone if they spit at you, in Allah is with the patient. You know, you're patient at the time of calamity and you respond positively, just like you see in the early period of the Prophet ﷺ. Therefore, you could engage with them positively and really attract their hearts. So, from that perspective, it is useful. Mm. However, I have had more positive debates that are more nuanced and more there's more information and discussion. But it's just the nature of Professor Lawrence Krauss, because Professor Lawrence Krauss has a Hitchens type of personality. He's adopting his role, I think. He's being pushed by the neo-atheist movement as one of the leaders now, because he's the big atheist concerning cosmology, the last battleground, if you like, between the religious folk and the atheist folk. They've done a documentary, Richard Dawkins and Professor Lawrence Krauss, called The Unbelievers. It got 100,000 hits in just a few hours. Not the documentary, the trailer, just mm. a few hours. So it's very popular. He's very popular as well. He is the leading neo-atheist just like Richard Dawkins now. So his attitude has to be based on mockery and ridicule. Because if you look at the neo-atheist movement, it doesn't have much intellectual clout. Its arguments are rehashed arguments from the Dahriya 
in the 8th century in Islam when you had Al-Ghazali and Ibn Jawzi and others they were responding to these people and these were what you would call the philosophical naturalists they believed the universe is a closed system there is no supernatural so their arguments are regurgitated, old but they are couched in mockery and ridicule and I would argue atheism is not an intellectual movement it's a political movement because they want to create an environment which I call Ahl al-Nafs the... The people or the area of nafs, like they just want to follow their desires. I know that sounds like a very crude religious retort, but actually, I don't mean it. I, I'm actually trying to be nuanced. If you look at their movement, it's based on ridicule and mockery, just to belittle any so-called intellectual voice from religious communities in order for them to create a society where they could just do what they want, frankly, and you know, live by the no harm rule, which I think is the most pathetic rule. It's a basis for morality. It's not morality itself. Don't harm others. Fair enough, but how does that relate to abortion? How does that relate to the grey areas in morality? You know, what, what do you mean by harm? Present harm? Future harm? Psychological harm? Do you know the impact of your actions? Do you see my point? So, anyway, that's another discussion. I don't want to get off on one as I usually do. But the point is, in a nutshell, debates are useful for social strategic reasons because if you think about it in the west Muslims are getting stronger but they're also leaving their religion as well there's in Europe for example according to the London Times 250,000 Muslims leave their religion every year in Bradford alone in a city in the UK 3,000 Muslims convert to Christianity a year so you have this kind of ongoing student narrative that people are questioning and therefore they can't find answers in the intellectual tradition of Islam and they leave and that's not because Islam doesn't provide those answers they do it's just it's, a, it's, it's like a phase and a narrative I was in Lahore in Pakistan of all places they have an atheist movement an atheist movement there's an atheist movement of Saudi now in Egypt the Egyptian spring if you like the Arab spring post-Arab Spring, what you have now is a growing feminist movement. You had women marching, hundreds of women with their underwear on sticks. You had a protest by one blogger or woman being naked. Egyptian! You have the secularists growing who who obviously hold an atheist philosophy and worldview. So atheism is growing and if you look at the census in 2011 in the UK, from 2001, post-9-11 to 2011, you have around a 30% growth in atheism on campus. So the new atheist movement has been a very successful movement with the four horsemen. You had Hitchens, Dennett, Harris and Dawkins. And they've written books that were very popular bestsellers, international bestsellers. I saw Dawkins' books in Pakistan in Islamabad. I mean, subhanAllah. So they have a movement that's online and online movements are far more successful than offline movements these days. And they have a grassroots movement as well. So this is why we need sometimes to have debates to show, look, these people, these so-called influentials and influencers, are actually not very influential. They're rude. They can come across quite arrogant. And they have a narrative of mockery and ridicule. And during the debate, one of the best parts of the debate, Professor Krauss said, I was questioning, you're questioning Sharia, Sharia, Islamic law. And you don't even have a book on Sharia law, you haven't even read about Sharia laws. And he said, that's why I asked the question. I said, no, you weren't asking the questions, you were pointing the finger. And, and I said, why don't you have a book? And he said, because it's nonsense. I said, you don't even have a book and you're making a judgment? We have an epistemic duty, a duty to knowledge, to read about our traditions and worldview. I have books on atheism, and that's why I want to connect with you as a human being. But you've come here blasé, yeah, not caring and having a presupposition of all religions, including Islam, is based on mock, it should be mock, should be ridiculed, and we should mock these traditions. Now, they're not going to get anywhere with religious folk if they continue like this. Uh, Muslims should not adopt their narrative either, and these debates are seen in the proper context, which is, it's a strategic thing. It's not what we would call da'wah, which we know da'wah in the Islamic tradition is to. Articulate a warm, positive message to the yes, wider society. Be, uh, yes, although in that ayah as well, Allah mentions debate, jadilhum, yeah, jadal, which is uh, the 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 word for debate. But that debate is couched with hikmah mm. and with with ihsan, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You do you're saying things as if you're talking in front of Allah Azza wa Jal. Although you can't do that, know that He sees you. 
inferring from the hadith of the Prophet as if the person you're calling to Islam is um, a family member rather than your mother I always say to people as if she yeah. uh, speak to people as if they're your mother if we all did this it would be fantastic but that's why we, when, we, when we see debates we have to understand them in the right context mm-hmm. so I would never advocate debates as a form of dawah itself um, a follow up question yes it's becoming clearer to me maybe that uh, the atheist movement is taking on a lot of religious uh, undertones uh, or there is a lot of uh, religious um, parallels. Yes. Right? And so, for example, one point you mentioned very well is that Professor Krauss said something, and pe- before people understood it, they started clapping for him. Yes, they did. Like they were, I mean, I think. Obedient said, slaves. Like okay. obedient slaves. So, this is very interesting as well that when they're talking about religion, they're talking about, uh, you know, millions of people following blindly. But again, their books, I mean, I would strongly doubt that they're very. Uh, complicated, in-depth books are read by, you know, the hundreds of millions of people who bought yes, them. Yes. They're just bought to be put on a, a bookshelf, just like a Quran is put on a bookshelf. Wallahi, brother, I'm telling you, we travel all around the world, we speak to thousands of university students, and it's exactly that. Mm. I was giving a lecture at the University of Nottingham just a few months ago in England, and you have even Muslims putting their hand up and asking questions. And I would... You know when this is your field, you just know where the Christians come from. So I'm like, that's a, that's a very... That's like, I would say, that's, a, that's, an, that's based on internet scholarship. I'll know where it came from. I'll say, you got that from Richard Dawkins' book. Do you even understand what, he's trying to, what he means by that? Because Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he talks about that God must be very complex as well. But his complexity is based on parts, individual parts. Like, like a machine, if you like. And obviously from our perspective, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ Allah is uniquely one. It's not made of individual parts. You know, we say, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like unto him. So, from that perspective, he, he, wrote, he raised that question. I said, do you even know what that means? What does complexity mean? And then he couldn't answer the question. I said, you're, you're asking me a question, you don't even have the answer. You're asking me the question, but you don't even understand your own question. And that's very shameful, because you're just referring to this book as taking a verse... Yeah, and just throwing it out to people who don't follow your type of religion, which is atheism. Because atheism has become a movement, like a religious movement. You have its founders, you have its figureheads, you have its books, and you have its narrative. And you even have people just being atheists because it's their belief. You see it. We went to the Atheist World Convention in Ireland just a few years ago. And people were atheists not because of intellectual arguments, they said, because that's my beliefs. Like, subhanAllah, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, they haven't even agreed on a definition of atheism either. But the point is, they are becoming like their enemies, if you like. It's very interesting as well, because as, as atheists, they should actually have some sort of an understanding that there is no universal truth, but they speak as if they have a hold of some truth. Yes, of course. Mm. Well, well, atheism is related to what I would call scientism, yeah. Now, scientism, there's a philosophical aspect and a social aspect. The social aspect is, look, science works, it's fantastic, which is fair enough. And we believe science is a blessing from Allah, and we use it wisely, and it came from the Muslims. If you read the works of Ibn al-Haytham, he wrote a book on optics, and according to Western historians of science like David Lindbergh and others, they say that he was one of the main founders of the scientific method. Now, the Greeks had science, but it wasn't formalized in a method like the Muslims developed it. But the point is, science works. So people say, look, you know, we're jumping on the bandwagon. Religion doesn't give us answers, science does. Also, but the problem here is they're conflating the why with the how. Do you see, science says you how things work, not necessarily why. Religion gives you the why. So... And this was something that Professor Hoodboy in Pakistan didn't really understand either. He was belittling the Qur'an when I had a debate with him in Lund, the Lahore University Management Sciences. Professor Hoodboy said, you know, look at the Qur'an. It says that earthquakes happen and they happen because God's punishment or a test or whatever. And he said, but we know that's stupid or we know that's wrong because we know about tectonic plate theory. And I was not that upset, but I was shocked at his reason and said... It's a logical fallacy, you've conflated the how with the why. For example, why did I have children? Because I'm attracted to my wife and I have these instincts. How is the process of embryology? The sperm fuses with the egg, then you have the zygote, then it implants, then you have this whole process of the embryological process. 
Now, both of them are right. The why is because I'm, attra- I'm attracted to my wife, she's my wife, and I have these instincts. The how is something different. So you conflate the how with the why here. I said, that's ridiculous. And, and, and that's what happens a lot. Anyway, coming back to the scientism issue. So there's the social aspect. The philosophical aspect is that science is the only way to form conclusions about things. Science is the only way to truth. That is not even a scientific statement. It's a metaphysical statement. It's, it's religion, in a way. It's, met, it's, it's a metaphysical, metaphysical statement. because, And that's something I brought up with Professor Lawrence Krauss. I said... You, re- you reject metaphysics, you reject philosophy, you reject deduction, you reject religion, but your views are religious. For example, your views are that science is the only way to form conclusions about things. That statement itself can't be proven using science. It, it's self-defeating. That's, that scientism can't prove logical truths and necessary truths like mathematics. One plus one is two. It can't prove moral truths, ascetic truths, historical truths. So therefore, it is not the only way to form conclusions about things. And for you to adopt that view is actually not a scientific view per se. It's a philosophical one. Or it's a religious one. It's, it's a belief. It's an assertion that you have. It, it's very rarely due to they have a moral position on things. Mm-hmm. To be fair, some people do. Some people just find some moral teachings abhorrent, for mm-hmm. example. But that's, that is relatively a weak position because a lot of our inclinations to moral good and moral bad is shaped by our society anyway because we're social animals. Mm-hmm. For example, if you go to Tibet, Buddhist Tibet in the 1930s, I believe, they used to immerse the newborns in freezing cold water and a lot of them would die. Now you may think that's barbaric, but Tibetan Buddhism is one of the most compassionate traditions. Mm-hmm. In text, you know, they're very pacifist, etc. And yet they do such a thing. But in order to understand them, you have to understand the social construct, which is based on karma, which is based on the culture, which is that if the child doesn't survive the freezing cold water now, it's going to die because of the Himalayan winters anyway. Do you see? So a lot of our moral inclinations towards things are based on our social construct anyway. So... I think it would be very shallow to judge a religion just based on that. I mean, if I did that, I wouldn't become Muslim because my moral beliefs were different at first mm-hmm. because our moral beliefs are shaped by our worldview. Yeah. They're shaped by our nature as well. We believe in the fitrah, mm-hmm. but they're also shaped by our worldview and our worldview shapes our moral. Uh, concerning morality, the issue is that our morals are shaped by our worldview, mm-hmm. essentially. And when we look at religion, especially Islam, we have to see the foundations of Islam. Mm-hmm. And by appreciating the concept and foundation of Islam, it really shapes our entire moral outlook. And if there's some things that we find that is disagreeable to our moral taste, then we should question where our moral tastes have come from. Because if our moral tastes are a product of our worldview and society, then we should challenge what our worldview is and challenge what our society is. Because at the end of the day, if you can prove, for example, that... God exists, you could prove God is one, you could prove that the Qur'an is a miracle from the divine, then essentially, whatever it says is going to be good for you. Mm. Because God knows you better than you know yourself, God transcends human subjectivity, Mm. and therefore by definition, what God commands is a derivative of His divine will, which we believe is all good. Mm. So... When we look at things that may seem on the onset as distasteful, when we research further, we see that they're unique and profound in the particular context as well. So that would be my advice to people looking at so-called hot topics in in Islam. Um, Going back to our topic about the atheist uh, movement, um, so we may notice that over the last five to ten years uh, there's been um, a shift in atheist movement is that they're becoming quite aggressive towards religiosity, towards Christianity, and now even more towards Islam in a way that's very similar to uh, non-atheists. And so for atheists, even though they uh, claim to have an um, unbiased position towards everything, they actually do are taking quite biased positions towards religions and uh, now specifically Islam as seen in, in the uh, debate you had with Professor Krauss and also with positions of Dawkins had when uh, he had a documentary about uh, religion and for Islam he went to a um, like a Jewish convert in Palestine. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yes. I mean... Same thing with Hitch, for example, when he wrote God is not great. Was, yes. Like it was mostly about Islam. Oh, his book is terrible. It's full of rhetoric. Mm. Using outdated orientalist arguments, especially when it comes to the Quran. 
but the point is this like there's nothing new about this the neo atheist movement has always been based on ridicule and mockery if you read the books if you listen to the lectures online you go to the conferences like I have you see that there is a ridicule and, and mockery undertone and it drives it drives them and I think it's important for them because the subconscious idea is this if you start respecting religion you intellectually validate some of its ideas and the whole movement is there to destroy religion essentially yeah and it's a pro-secular movement as well so why would you want to give these ideas any credence in the public political social sphere so yeah that's exactly what they do for example Richard Dawkins in his Twitter what would he say he would basically say I haven't read the Quran but Islam is so and so he would make a judgment on the Islamic tradition not reading the Islamic tradition which is a joke you know there was an argument that said well you don't have to know about Nazism you don't have to read you don't have to read Mein Kampf to know about Nazism but that's totally misapplied flawed analogy from that perspective because well Nazism was only about 20 years old exactly not just that not just that Nazism wasn't just based on Mein Kampf <laughs> Do you see? And Marx is not defined by Mein Kampf. So, so Marx is based upon its political movement, which you could see as a manifestation. But Islam is not defined by Muslims. It's defined by the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it's a flawed, flawed, flawed retort. But the point is, yeah, it's based on ridicule, mockery, and it's a shame. I mean, so many debates I've had with atheist intellectuals, Professor Lawrence Krauss. Professor Simon Blackburn from Cambridge University, which is not on video at the moment, but it's going to come out soon. He, and we had this debate a few years ago. He just basically ignored all intellectual arguments. He said, oh, I don't care about this anymore. Let's just talk about humanism and what, how we should really live. I was like, I mean, wow. He just totally dismissed all the intellectual arguments. You had Dan Barker, for example. Dan Barker, he's a very famous atheist in America. He wrote the book Godless and he's supported by Dawkins and others and he was one of the founders for the Freedom From Faith Foundation or something and he basically had, we had a debate in Minnesota and he was so so angry he was like I want Allah to go to hell you know stuff like that I was like I had to really say to him is this therapy for you? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the debate yeah. I said, is this therapy for you? is, is, is this how you makes, you, makes you makes you feel better? because he's an S ex-pastor you see okay. he wrote the famous song about Mary had a little lamb I think oh really yeah and oh. he still gets money from it as well <laughs> um, so but that doesn't mean all atheists are the same though. I think Muslims should never fall for the trap and use the narrative that people use against us that all Muslims are the same all terrorists we should never use the same thing to other people mm. I mean we're not stupid we don't get bitten from the same hole twice we see what the atheist movement's about but generally, normal atheists are just normal human beings who are looking for answers and they're very nice human beings as well. And they have a moral disposition. And, you know, many of these atheists, they don't, they don't have the answers because Christianity failed. And Islam, in its intellectual theological tradition, can provide those strong emotional and intellectual answers that will not only convince their mind but give the heart tranquility. And that's something that we need to really engage with others in a very warm way. But from a movement perspective, as you can see, the main proponents of the atheist movement do base a lot of things on mockery and ridicule. I mean, just join my Twitter account and you will see the amount of rubbish I get from these crazy people. <laughs> There's an ex-Muslim forum, forum in England. Yeah. Oh my God, they're just not letting go. I think they have a Hamza fetish. <laughs> yeah, even on YouTube, yeah, Hamza George is debunked. Hamza George is this. There's one uh, online YouTube blogger guy not to mention his name if you were to type my name in his YouTube channel I, he has like 20, 20 videos on me or something it's Ahamza Zodis fetish I'm like what's wrong with these people and they're doing it because a lot of this stuff is based on ridicule and mockery uh, you know this particular guy on, on the web did an analysis of the debate and it was a non-intellectual analysis it was just ridicule and mockery that's all it was and it's a shame because the more they do it, the more people start to believe it. I mean, it was even, was it Goebbels, one of Hitler's henchmen said that if you say a lie long enough that and loud enough, yeah. people are going to believe it. And, and that's the case with religion sometimes. Yeah. How do we respond? The point is now we have to arise and warn. We need to wake up, stop uh, falling in love with the dunya, have our portion, of course. 
but we're in bed with the dunya, isn't it? And we've divorced the akhirah from that perspective. And, you know, if you marry the dunya, then your mahar is going to be the akhirah. So you're giving away your mahar, the akhirah. And so from that perspective, we need to really become active ourselves and have a movement of Islam. Because you have the neo-atheist movement, the secular movement, the humanist movement, the Christian movement, all these other isms and schisms in this like cauldron, in this marketplace of competitive ideas and ideologies and worldviews and spiritual traditions. We need to insert ourselves in this as well and we need to provide a unique positive case rather than just being quiet all the time. Because, you know... It's free to open your mouth. And that's what Allah Azza wa Jalla is asking you to do. Open your mouth. But the things that you say, make sure you know. And the way you say it, make sure it's aligned with the sunnah of our beloved Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Which means using rahmah and compassion. As the Quran says, talking about Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That if you were not kind and nice to them, they would have run away from you. They would have deserted you. Referring to the Sahaba. Now, Jamakshari and others... They comment on this saying, you know, this is about the love and mercy of the Prophet ﷺ. So that is a key communication channel for the tradition of Islam. If you don't have that, then you could say anything and it's not going to work. So we need to wake up. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا اسْتَجِيبُوا لِلَّهِ وَلِلْرُسُولِ إِذَا دَعَاكُمْ لِمَا يُحِيكُمْ All you who believe, respond to the call of Allah and His Messenger to, to that which gives you life. يُحِيكُمْ Life. And the ulama say, if we don't respond, then we've got dead hearts. So the decision is ours from that perspective. It's, it's really a spiritual thing. Da'wah and articulating a positive case is a spiritual thing. But da'wah as well is action, it's both. It's, 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 the, it's the call and it's the action. From our readings, um, the more we read about history, about politics, about philosophy, the more our understandings change. And this is the reason why uh, we call our show The Alchemy of Truth, because the truth changes a lot but there's always a core yes. and so my question to you is what are your core beliefs what are your unchanging beliefs I mean it can't be just for example that la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah what, I mean how far would you venture out for beliefs that you would say will never change this is a very interesting question can I have an hour to think about it <laughs> I'm only joking we, we can go back to it later if you like I mean my core unchanging beliefs from this perspective is Number one, that God exists. Number two, that He must be one and unique and transcendent. Number three, that there is something special about the Quran. Number four, the prophetic traditions of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam on a whole, to reject them or suspend them would be equivalent of rejecting any known history. Because the methodology of Ilm al-Hadith, the science of Hadith, or Ilm al-Rijal, the science of the people, in the chains of narrations that carried the prophetic traditions throughout the ages, is such a robust historical science. To reject it is like rejecting the existence of Aristotle, rejecting even the world is round. Because the reason we know the world is round is not because we've seen the world is round. Now you may think I've seen it, it's pictures. But you need someone's say-so, someone's testimony to say that picture is the earth. Mm. And we haven't actually done the science ourselves. We don't know the math. We haven't done the geology. We haven't gone to the highest mountain to see the curvature of the earth. We haven't traveled space. The reason we believe the world is round is because the academics, our school taught us, we saw pictures. And that is all testimony. It's the say-so of others. And hadith is no different. It's the say-so of others. And it's such a robust science because it's based on... I mean, we don't have to go into the science of it, but it's such a robust science. To reject it would be tantamount in rejecting any known history. Mm. So these are core unchanging ideas from that perspective. The other one is about compassion. Compassion makes things beautiful. Removing compassion makes things ugly. That's actually a prophetic tradition as well. <laughs> when the Prophet ﷺ spoke to Aisha when she slapped a camel on the face or tapped it on the face or something, and the Prophet ﷺ talked about gentleness and kindness from that perspective that it elevates it and to remove it, it degrades it. So, but that is also for me very universal because I think it's been ingrained with me socially from my father. Other ideas I think which are quite changing is the idea of causality, that there are necessary causal connections. 
to deny causality would be to deny your own perceptions because causality pre- perceptions presuppose causal connections when we get philosophical in Islam we have to understand that we're not being philosophical just for the sake of it and we're not being philosophical we're not creating a philosophy or a thought system that doesn't have a basis in the Quran and the prophetic traditions because once you do that you're going to fail and a lot of many other variant creeds in the Islamic tradition and, and, and different creedal schools they f- they did that mistake they wanted sincerely to respond to the Hellenic thinking and the intellectual onslaught the Muslims were facing but they did so using their premises not using the Quran and the Sunnah as a premise to articulate a very positive case for Islam and once you do that you become inconsistent, incoherent and you contradict your own tradition and you have to start looking at Islam in a way that our early tradition never looked at Islam this is why I really like Ibn Taymiyyah now I know Ibn Taymiyyah has been used and abused by everybody everyone owns him Yeah, may Allah have mercy on his soul um, but Ibn Taymiyyah is a unique figure in his own right there's a really good book yeah, I saw it on the floor. Oh, it's on the floor, <laughs> It's It's called Ibn Taymiyyah's Theodicy of Perpetual Optimism by the scholar John Hoover. He's from the University of Nottingham. And he's trying to show that Ibn Taymiyyah is not what people think he was, that this kind of blind literalist, dogmatist. He was actually a very profound thinker. And he advocated thinking and philosophy and thought, but on the premise that you have the Quran and Sunnah as that, as your premise and then you can create a very coherent philosophy of Islam and a very coherent thought mechanism of Islam so the point is this is why our axiom, our unchanging truth is the Quran and and the prophetic traditions and from that you could develop a whole philosophical narrative based on that and that's why it comes to your unchanging beliefs when we start getting philosophical in these things, Mus- I would advise Muslims first and foremost to look at their creed, understand their basis, understand who Allah is, understand what the Quran says who Allah is, go through a basic creedal book like maybe Aqidah Tahawiyah, mm-hmm. and then start going into philosophy because it can be a very dangerous space um, because there are some hidden premises that are not announced in philosophy mm-hmm. or in, in, in other people's philosophy. So, if we want to develop a strong case for our tradition, we first have to know what our tradition is, and then we can start articulating a positive case for it. Now, even the ulama, including Ibn Taymiyyah, they never, never, never said that using terms is a problem. Like, you could use terms that are outside of the Quran and Sunnah. Mm. For example, aqidah is outside of the Quran and Sunnah from that perspective, that word itself. But we must be clear with their meanings, and the meanings of these words must can't contradict the Islamic basis. The Quran and the Sunnah It can't be ambiguous So you can use other terms So when you start talking about philosophy Make sure the philosophical terms you use Are in line with your tradition mm. and, and make sure it's in line with your basis So therefore you'll be able to Create a coherent view on Islam Because if you don't If you use someone else's premises Then you've got a problem like For example Some of the ulama in our past They wanted to react to the Hellenic thinking And what they did They adopted a Hellenic view on language Not a classical view on language because you know in the classical Arabic you can have words that don't have any practical meaning do you know that? Mm. they're just internal concept yes yeah. without kaif without modality without kaifiyya for example take the word wing mm. that's exactly the same thing grammatically or linguistically the word wing doesn't have a practical manifestation now you may think wing of a bird well what about wing of a building or a hospital mm. do you see or Etc. X, Y, and Z. It's used for different meanings, but it's yes, but there's this there's this almost internal construct in the brain that appreciates that it is a meaning, mm. but it doesn't have a physical application unless you start giving it a physical modality, like the wing of a bird, the wing of a hospital. Then you start giving it a modality. But before that, even if you look at the dictionary. It's like this kind of abstract notion and the, and the Arabic language has lots of words like this Actually, the Arabic language works like this as well From that perspective Now what happened though was many, Some of the ulama, may Allah have mercy on them They started adopting a Hellenic view on language which, which was based, I think, a bit differently It was based on, no, things must have practical meaning If they don't, they, therefore they don't have any meaning 
but that's not true in, in the Arabic tradition. So, and therefore, just from that perspective, they use the wrong premise, and then they create what I would call an incoherent philosophy of Islam. Something we have to be aware about as Muslims, inshallah. No problem. Do you have any questions that you don't have answers for yet, that you're still searching for, or that you, maybe you're even scared of going in their direction? Um, of course, so many. I mean, questions include, you know, what is the nature of consciousness or the soul? But Allah has given us an answer in a way. He said it's the it's the it's the command, it's the amr of Allah azza wa jal, and we've been given not much knowledge in it. So basically, shut up. <laughs> or basically, the things that you're going to come up with are going to be highly speculative. Which is true. I studied psychology at university, and, and it's true. When we talk about the self or the soul or the consciousness, it's all it's all speculation. Is al ilm It's the knowledge of speculation. That's an interesting question. The other interesting question is because we believe in the Islamic tradition, Allah has purposes. He does. He's not an abstract robot that just wills without without purpose. We believe the things that Allah Azza wa Jal commands or does are derivatives of His will, and His will is based on a per- perfect goodness and a perfect justice. And therefore, we know Allah has does things for a reason. For example, He says in the Quran. You know, do you think we, we created you for play? We created the universe for play. You know, ليعبدون, we, we, He created man and jinn to worship Allah. So there are purposes to things that Allah does. And the question I had in my mind was, fine, we know we're here to worship Allah, but why? Hmm. He doesn't need us. But he, He's created us for that reason, but why for that reason? Obviously there's no answer. The way I've tried to think of an answer, which... I think is the best answer not because I thought of it is because it's the only one I could come up with and no one has given me anything else so maybe people could email us and give us a good answer <laughs> the best answer I come up with is this you to answer that question is to deny Allah's existence because Allah by definition is going to have knowledge that you're not going to have his wisdom you're never going to fully appreciate because it is the wise he's the wise the definite particle meaning you will never appreciate anything like if you go to the commentaries of Ibn Kathir when he talks about Khidr and Musa alayhi salam and that conversation and the narrative that was happening Ibn Kathir says look we have been given particular knowledge not the totality of knowledge we don't have the totality of the wisdom of Allah so for some questions we'll never know because to answer that question means we can jump into the mind inverted commas mind yeah into the mind of Allah which is impossible because we're two different paradigms also you know, think of it from this way, this analogy. Can a cat think like an elephant? Can an ant think like a giraffe? They're two different paradigms. So you, you're not even comparable to Allah. And you think you could answer this question because it goes really into like almost the intentionality of Allah Azza wa Jal or the reasonings of... And these things are outside of your control from that perspective. You only know what Allah has given you. So that's probably the best answer. To answer it would be to deny His existence in the first place and to deny... Who you are and who Allah is. The second thing is an existential point, which is, you know, what does it mean to exist? Look, at the end of the day, someone's thrown you off a cliff into this ocean full of sharks and they're going to eat you. But the person who threw you off the cliff gave you a book to navigate the sea to go on this eternal island full of peace. What do you do? Do you read the book and go to the island or do you turn around and give him the finger? You go, you, you go and read the book, isn't it? So I think that's the existential crisis. So that's a question that's really not unanswerable from that perspective. And there's many, many more. Uh, the reason Muslims talk like this is because a lot of the non-Muslims think that Muslims or religious people, they think they know everything. But Allah even tells us in the Qur'an that we don't know everything. The, the key axiom in the Qur'an is human knowledge is limited. Mm. Another key axiom is that, key p- principle is, if you don't know, ask those who know. Mm. So we don't know. So this, is, I mean, this is the importance really and the timeless lessons that we get from the story of Musa salam and Al-Khidr. Yes, of course. Is that uh, there are so many things that happen and this you see a lot um, when, for example, there is a tsunami that happens somewhere in the States. Everyone comes out and says this is a punishment from Allah because of the cartoons that they drew or because of the YouTubers. Yeah, but you don't know. But exactly. Because Do you have wahi? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Allah has given us various reasons for why things happen. Some things are punishment, some things are a test. There's other traditions that indicate it's a test for the ummah. So the point is, we don't actually know. So all we need to do is reflect within ourselves, become better Muslims. And even if it's a punishment, 
and there's an earthquake, what's your job? Is it your job to point the finger and say, ha ha ha? No, your job is to help them. Because you're ukhrijat linnas, you're here for the people. Linnas, not minannas, not from them, you're for them, you're supposed to be taking care of them. So, do you see, so if we really understand our tradition properly, then we'll be very proactive. Um, there is a, um, a thinker slash scholar slash, um, I don't know, think tank, I think, a uh, Palestinian living in uh, Venice, I think, or not in Venice, somewhere in Europe. His name is Adnan Ibrahim. He gives khutbas in Arabic. And he gives lectures as well on philosophy. Uh, and so one of his uh, statements is, he says that he follows his mind. He yes. follows his heart. And he has faith, complete faith in Allah. And so when he goes into these philosophical discussions or the, uh, philosophical exercises, he is ready to go all the way. He says even if it t- uh, takes him to the you know outside of religion, to atheism, he will go to it, but he knows that he's not going to go to it because he knows uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is this the um, extent to which you would travel to as well? Is there a a exercise or a, a thought, for example, that would stop you and you would think, that's it, I'm not going past this? That's a good question. I mean, the Qur'an, Allah Azza wa Jal, tells us to think and reflect. أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ وَفِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَفَلَا do not use your intellect, do not reflect within yourself. So that Allah essentially gives us verses to think and reflect and ponder. Mm. Malik Badri, he wrote a book, Contemplation of Psycho-Spiritual Study. And he basically says that تدبر and تفكر, reflecting and pondering is a neglected ibadah. It's a neglected worship. Uh, we must be people of thought and thinking. Allah has... Allah doesn't really give us much answers concerning man life in the universe. There are more questions. Have you not seen? Have you not seen the camera how we created it? He doesn't tell us how he created it. He's telling us to think about how he created it. Do you see? So these are what you would call teleological verses. Yani, it means that these verses are there for a specific end, and that end is to understand the rububiyya and the ulahiya aspects of Allah Azza wa Jal. Yani in Tawheed, in the science of the oneness of Allah, that Allah deserves to be worshipped, He is one, and that He is the Lord of the universe. And these verses point towards that direction to make you think. So thinking itself is, 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 is highly promoted, and unfortunately it's a neglected worship in Islam. So yeah, I would think about various things, but it's not for everybody, because some people... Don't want to As one person once emailed me recently Don't want to dirty their heart Because sometimes when you're going to really silly philosophies and ideas It dirties your heart And you shouldn't do it for no reason Our religion is a practical religion And when we need to go to certain ideas We only do so because it's actually affecting the Muslims Or it's affecting the Dawah itself That's why Ibn Taymiyyah And many others They wrote refutations Like for example Tahafat al-Falasifah the refutation of the philosophers by Al-Ghazali, you have Ibn Taymiyyah's work on so many different issues concerning different ideas that were out there. So, so we, we need to be practical from that perspective. But also we have to understand the role of the fitrah, because we believe... the. See, once you have connected with Allah Azza wa Jal, even if it was for a split second, you know Islam's the truth, you've tasted it, khalas is there. You, and there's a difference between experiential knowledge and... The knowledge that we think is real knowledge Because sometimes experiential knowledge is far more profound And I never used to believe this Until I, I studied this a bit And I realized that You don't really get a concept Unless you've experienced it properly And then you really understand And you know what, the funny thing is you can't articulate You know, everyone has a drama yeah, In their life And there's a difference between our drama and reality Our drama is our is based upon our history, our perceptions, our upbringing, and we superimpose it on future events. Now, how do you divorce your drama from reality? I would never know how to do that. But I attended a course once, and then it gave you an experiential process that you experienced it. Then you understood. But you could never understand just by talking about it. Do you see? And that's profound. And Islam is very similar. Once you've connected with Allah Azza wa Jal, then, then no matter what comes towards you, we'll be able to deal with it, inshallah. That's why the role of the fitrah is important That you know Islam is the truth It's not just a concept, it's a precept Because the basis of Islam Namely the oneness of Allah His existence in the Quran This is based on fitrah This is based on the innate disposition of man 
So it's not a concept, it's a precept. It's actually something that's already there, that's acknowledged and known. And there's many anthropological studies that Professor Bruce Lawrence, Bartlett, Olivia Petrovich and others, they say even if you were to take atheist children on a desert island, they'll still believe in one God. They'll start to believe in one God. So it's, it's part of our disposition. We see this socially as well and politically. The Chinese and the atheists, they were irreligious societies. The Russians and the Chinese, they were atheist societies, communists. But they still had worship. They had the huge statues of Lenin and Stalin. They used to revere them. So that instinct of worship was there. So, and I don't think worship has a pre-evolutionary forerunner anyway. Especially an immaterial, transcendent God. Because how could a human being that came from an evolutionary process develop the idea of a transcendent, immaterial God when all your input has just been material? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, that's quite bizarre. It's like consciousness. How can consciousness come from non-conscious matter? And that, that's one of the... That's what Schroeder, the physicist, said, I think. And he said, there's no difference between a lump of sand and the brain of Einstein. The only difference is consciousness, which is essentially immaterial from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Like intention. If I, where, where is the, You can't find intention anybody anywhere in your brain. There's no area in your brain that says, this is where I'm intending to do something. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. Anyway, that's another topic for itself, though. Um, I'm giving a khutbah today, and it's about a statement of Imam Ali in which he says, In the meaning of oh Allah, I didn't worship you uh, in fear of your hellfire or in hope of your paradise. Uh, rather, I saw that you are worthy of worship, so I worshipped you. Yes. Now, I've heard the story of your conversion. It's a, it's a very uh, powerful story. Jazakallah uh, khairan for sharing it. It's generally any story. I didn't share it. It's uh, if I was told to share it Alright oh, I mean It was shared <laughs> I shared it with someone And they shared it with the world That's the difference What was that audio? It was audio yeah So it was yeah. some sort of interview. Yeah no I thought it was I they never knew it would be recorded Oh really? I thought it would be <laughs> For the radio show only yeah. In California mm. But I never knew it would be Put on YouTube Oh okay yeah. Well, that's how I heard it. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Generally, when I'm reading books about converts, um, their conversion story is, is quite powerful. I mean, so we've heard them so much now that it's just become sort of like a, it's a blockbuster sort of thing. It becomes quite shallow. But if you think about it, uh, there is a step. There is a, a divine um, a trigger that's clicked, and then that person has no option but to become Muslim. Yes. And so it's not like um, you know a transcendent thing where all of a sudden you're carried on the wings of angels. And no, it's actually you have no option. Yes. Uh, and so I'd like to ask you, your knowledge of Islam, hope, fear, and love, or hope, fear, and knowledge. And so you had the knowledge before you became Muslim, and your knowledge about Islam and the truth of Islam was much more than some Muslims or many Muslims before you became Muslim. So then, what was it? What was the trigger? that pushed you towards Islam? Was it the hope? Or was it um, reaching that level in, in love and knowledge? Or was it the fear? Well, I don't know. It's hard. It's, really, it's a really hard question. Do you remember the thought that... that uh, no, it's, but it wasn't really a thought. It was more of a feeling. Mm. I think, see, the intellectual arguments in Islam are not an end. They're just a means. Mm. They're a means to wake up your fitrah, wake up your innate disposition. And I would argue that as a result of hearing and reading some intellectual arguments, it woke up my fitra and my fitra was now buzzing. Mm. There was this feeling now that you need to you need to swim in this ocean. Yeah, you need to jump in. Even if you're not ready, you still need to do it. That was a profound feeling, I think. It was a very profound feeling. So I don't know, I mean I think it's a mixture of, of three. You know, they're all wings that you that you need to fly. Hope, fear, love, knowledge. They all intertwine. Now, some people have uh, heightened. They have a emphasis on one or the other. Like some people work more with fear. Some people work more with hope. Some people just work more with love. Some people just work more with the knowledge of the fact that La ilaha illallah. You you are the only divine reality worthy of worship. The only deity worthy of worship. So, khalas, this is it. This is my, you know, for me to deny that would, would, would be to deny myself. Because I've been born for this. And denying that is denying myself. 
And that's why Allah in a way You could do tadabbur on this Allah Azza wa Jalla When He says if you, if you forget Allah Allah will make you forget your own selves So Our own identity and who we are Is in line with Is, is, is in line with our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So going back 10 years ago I would just argue it's It was probably a bit of three Or three Or four actually Love, hope, fear, knowledge And it develops It develops and then we know in the science of ikhlas the science of sincerity we know that sincerity itself could be doing it just for prevention of hellfire you could do it just for going to jannah you could do it just for the fact that you love allah or you could do it for all three mm. do you see so in essence love the love of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the highest level from that perspective which we should all reach try if we can but it's not easy um, So you've been a Muslim for 10 years Alhamdulillah Tell me about And this inshallah is the last question About your uh, journey Learning learning about the Prophet And about your love for him Yeah. Because this again I mean you are seen as an intellectual debater So it's forgotten that you're also a Muslim And that you also um, Your knowledge of Islam is one of the heart As well as the mind in the beginning, it was mostly Quranic based because of the fact that when people were speaking to me about Islam, you know, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he was mentioned as a vehicle for the Quran. But obviously, you know, when you start practicing Islam much more, you know, basically, that an essential part of your iman of your faith is to love the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam more than you love your own self, more than you love your own mother. And this is quite interesting because when you look at the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, those feelings are engendered, they're developed within you. So I think a key way of nurturing love concerning the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam for me is to read his life. Many Muslims don't read his life, it's quite shocking. It's even a basic book like The Sealed Nectar, for example, or any book, any summary of, of the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And you would see what kind of human being he was concerning as a statesman, as a judge, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a political leader, as a friend, as a companion, as a traveler, as a worshipper. And you see, and when you realize and you look at the moral variables and the context of that situation, that he was the perfect in every situation. And not only that, and you see a very unique character that you could never read in any book. I mean, how many people do you know that were successful statesmen, fathers, husbands, spiritual leaders, governors, judges, friend, companion? I mean, he was a holistic human being. And there are so many beautiful insights to his life. For example... There was an Arab who wanted to meet the Prophet and was looking for him and he went into the gathering where all the Muslims were and he said, where's Muhammad? Now for me that shows the humility of the Prophet because he was like everybody else. He never stood out. Or there was another man who came to him very shaking and, 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 and you know fearful. And the Prophet just said to him, you know, in essence, don't worry. I'm, I'm the son of a Quraishi woman who used to eat dried meat. You see, he, he humbled himself, he humanized himself. Just to show, look how humble he is to everybody else. He, he used to get dirty in the mud and, 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 and work like everybody else. He would never, never, never demand his right. He would never demand his right from anybody. Only when it came to the rights of Allah. The way he responded to threats, violence, his mercy to children, for example, the way he used to hold his grandchildren on, his, on top of his shoulders and say, Ya Allah, I love so-and-so, so love so-and-so. The way he used to teach people, there's one Sahabi, he said, Wallahi, I've never met the best teacher, no be- better teacher than the Prophet He would not judge people who would understand them on their level, even when he spoke to children. Like when we speak to children, we're like, ah, get lost, you know, we, we just belittle their problems. But the Prophet was very, took them seriously, so he didn't give children an inferiority complex. I mean, subhanAllah, so you go into child psychology, you go to so many different things. I mean, the life of the Prophet is just phenomenal. And 
the more you read about him, the more you want to be like him. And the way he treated his wives, he used to race with them. He allowed them to do food fights. He said to Aisha, won't you return the favor? Or the other way around, when I think Aisha brought some halwa. It wasn't her turn though. She's been a bit competitive with his other wife. And they start having a food fight, and then we'll go and return the favor. You know? He used to race with his wife. He said, you know, there isn't a hadith related to this. The person said, you know, everything's a waste of time apart from three things. And one of those things was having fun with your wife. So, it requires study though. And it just requires a reading around his life and a study of his characteristics, the way he looked, the way he acted. And we knew, for example, the way he looked, his hair wasn't straight nor curly, it was in between. He was not too tall, not too short. He was very handsome, of course. His face was bright as the moon. I mean, there are so many characteristics. So when we look, we think about his physical appearance, we think about his character, his rahmah, his mercy, his love, his justice, his his principles. Uh, you can't have... Who, who else are you going to find? It's, it's impossible. This is an unparalleled character. And we have biographical data for 10,000 of his companions it's called Ilm al-Rijal the science of the biographies of people you name me five people of Obama biographically Buddha Jesus Jesus we don't even know their second names Mark who Luke who yeah the Prophet is the only man in history we have 10,000 people with the biographical data you know the Prophet would also say things like you know true richness is not having being rich having wealth is richness of the soul the person will talk, teach us about that, that we're one. Al-Mu'minun Mirat al-Mu'min. We are mirrors of each other. The Prophet will talk about that, you know, we will not go to paradise until we truly believe. We won't truly believe until we love one another. He used to, you know, talk about, there's various hadiths in Bukhari and elsewhere about reconciliation and peace and let's go and be the peacemakers and bring people together. Charity economic justice distribution of wealth compassion mercy loving for others what you love for yourself you won't truly believe unless you love for others what you love for yourself and, and this others this brotherhood is humanity you have and now we're talking about insania human beings Imam Rajab al-Hanbali a student of Ibn Taymiyyah wrote the book The Compendium he discusses a whole chapter on this hadith and says this means other people because he relates it to other narrations of Imam Ahmed and other places I mean we could go on and on and on and on about the Prophet Sallallahu and I think the only way to appreciate the Prophet is by learning about his life learning about his compassionate loving nature you know when, when he was holding a baby a child and the child urinated on him and all he did is just give the baby to someone and just sprinkled water over the over the place now some of us as fathers and mothers if for example our child spilled, spilled some coffee on us we get angry do you see so there's all these wonderful things that the Prophet showed us through his personality and character which are quite profound and there are some things that we may think oh we don't really understand this but when we look at the moral variables and the context of the situation we see it was the right thing to do and the best thing to do and he was and he had a perfected character. Uh, brother, thank you very much for the time you've no given worries. us. Um, I hope it didn't um, sap too much. No, no, energy. it's perfect. I enjoyed it, but Jazakallah, may Allah bless you. Jazakallah, And uh, please, uh, we always look forward to having you back here more and more. Inshallah, inshallah. Jazakallah,